Night falls and the trees are steady. The heavy wind settles but darkness is awake. The atmosphere is strangely quiet, the air is cold and a blue shadow emerges. She lands on the ground and pulls back her blue wings. Her soft skin stops glowing. Her long nails go back to their normal size. She longed for freedom of this monster trapped inside her. Not only does she have the ability to destroy, but she also has the ability to ease the pain of others, but not herself. This is schoolgirl Shekinah Egan reading one of the stories she has written. Last year, at the age of 14, Shekinah found herself at the centre of national and international news headlines when her school principal wrote to the Department of Education looking for guidelines on the wearing of headscarves in state schools. I'll show you from scratch. Well, this bit goes, I mean, because you're a woman, so I'll show yeah. you. Feel, feel. You wouldn't do yeah. this in front of a man? No, I wouldn't. I'm in her house in Gori, where she and her mother Beverly are showing me the Muslim headscarf, or hijab, a piece of cloth that has sparked controversy in Western societies. Well, my name is Beverly Mackenzie. My Muslim name is Sa'ad. Um, I chose the name Sa'ad because it means uh, good fortune or happy. And I chose it because I, I considered it at the time to be my good fortune to know something about God or to find out about God. Now, there are many styles. This is one from the Middle East, which... You have one side which is quite short, another which is quite long, and then it just comes sort of two-thirds across the head and then tuck the sides in carefully like that under the chin. And then you bring the long side. Um, been Muslim for roughly about 12 years now. We were Christians, actually, for a few years beforehand, and um, this took place in London. I met my husband there. Um, he was a Christian and... Um, we married pretty soon after I'd met her, actually. Five weeks after I'd met her. I, I, was, I was at a Christian party, in fact, and uh, I saw her, and uh, that was it. Made every effort then to get in contact. The way that you want, you want to wear it. And there are different ways of doing it. That's just one way. And I might just uh, tuck the ends in or throw the other side over my shoulder and so on. But there are different ways. This I'm the mother of uh, Shekinah Egan. I'm 15 years old. Um, I've been living in Gori for around a year and a uh, half, I think it's nearly been. I go to Gori Community School. I'm second year now, and uh, when I grow up, I probably wanted to be an artist or writer. She lies against one of the white trees that surrounds her, pulls over her long brown cloak over her head, and lowers her breath under a scarf wrapped around her neck. She clenches, clenches sorry, tight to her cloak, arms wrapped around, keeping the cold out. She slowly closes her eyes and let this place take her away. I don't know, it's just the adventure of it that interests me, so I just like to write things like what just comes in my head. My way is I try to picture it as if it was real, you know, and then in my mind so I can write down stories. And, and that's why I spend hours in my room just writing. My dad's like, well, you come downstairs and I'm like, oh few minutes because I don't want to lose it you know so I just had to write it down and then I can come downstairs if I get tired. She has her family name which is Egan which is my husband's surname. My, my name is Liam or Mujahid in Islam. Um, I'm a Gori resident. I was born in Coventry, England and uh, but my parents are Irish. My, my grandparents are Irish so my, my history is Irish and I was brought up here basically. We have four daughters. 
Shekinah, Shakura, Shakira, and Shadia. Shekinah and Shakura were both born in Britain. Uh, Shadia was born in Shakira was born in Yemen, and Shadia. I'm getting all the names wrong here, aren't I? And Shadia was born in, in Saudi Arabia. You know, there's so many different styles now, and so she's got a nice sporting... Jilbab. Uh, Jilbab. It's got a hood with it. But these are one of the styles. I've chosen a sporty one. It's got white stripes, and it's got a bit of grey. The actual colour is dark blue. got two pockets, and I've got two lined-up zips at the side to let me run in a bit. So you can see it's actually fairly long, right? It covers the top, so the neck's not showing it. And that's basically the, the no uniform day they had at the school, where the the yeah, they could wear anything they they liked, and she chose to wore this particular style. And actually, a few students actually said, "Wow, you yeah." Know, <laughs> when they saw something like that, it's kind of like sort of a Jedi thing. So it's like, "Wow, you know, can I have Jedi. one of those?" Yeah, you know, it's yes, kind of like yeah. a hood, you know. And they're thinking, "That's Luke really Skywalker. cool," you know. <laughs> they saw, and um, one of them was like, "Go, go, get it from England," you know. So they were that. So obsessed with it. <laughs> and when would you wear that? I'd wear it every time I go out. And for praying? Yeah, I usually, I usually have one for praying. I feel very regal when I put my jilbab on, you know, when I put my, to cover my body and so on. Some wear it from the head downwards, but it's the full, the full covering. But when I first put it on, um, I felt like a queen. I felt like a queen, you know. My husband used to call me his princess. <laughs> yeah, you know. he still does too. Actually does, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Uh, God is most great, God is most great. Ashhadu anna la ilaha illallah. There is no God. But Allah. But Allah. Uh, my husband left Gori around about the age of 18. In London I got involved with uh, the Churches of Christ. It was part of the uh, Crossroads movement. But the particular church that I was part of was... Um, it was deemed a cult, unfortunately. And as Christians, you know, we sort of, we plodded along and then we embraced Islam. So he did, first of all, initially, my husband did. And then I followed a couple of weeks after that. Just sort of, you know, those dis- dis- sort of dis- discrepancies um, that we found here and there in the Bible. There were those things that didn't add up and we were looking for, a, we wanted a more um, religious way of life. I remember debating one young guy, his name was Abdurrahim, wasn't it? Abdurrahim. And he was a young African-Caribbean gentleman and he was constantly debating with me in Hyde Park. And he'd say, God is one. And I'd say, no, God is three. But his arguments were always a lot more convincing. And so I I thought, okay, well, maybe I should uh, investigate Islam. I mean, I began to cover my arms and the skirts got longer and longer and people thought that I was crazy. But then when we came to Islam, we actually realised that the more Christian that we became, the closer it was to Islam. The biggest decision that we made after that was to actually travel to a Muslim country. We ended up going to Yemen. It was a wonderful time because you could really sort of embrace the religion and practice it as you sort of really wanted to. It was a time of growth for us, I think, you know, sort of new Muslims and then going to a Muslim country. And we stayed there for three years. Yemen, I can't really remember that much. It was obviously quite warm there. I just remember this. I was standing outside the roof and they, they recited the then. That's when they, they call people to come and pray. That's when I actually um, thought that was really beautiful then. The sun was coming down and you could just hear this this man just... It's like singing, basically. I thought that was really beautiful.
And then we made the decision to uh, travel to Saudi Arabia before returning back home to Ireland. I think it's really nice being here. Um, I guess there's loads of things you don't really get to see back in Saudi Arabia that you do here. Like the nature, you don't get to see loads of trees or, you know, the sky. You don't get the clouds just stay in one place, they don't move. And that's something I found really different here because the clouds move really fast and you can see the stars. And it's really nice being around here with the family because my grandmother died a year and a half ago, I think. So my dad said, "Okay, we'll go here. I also was glad to come here so I can, you know, know about my cousins more. Because I never knew I had so many cousins, you know. I, I still don't know who they are, but they're out there. It's sort of protecting you from those people who are staring at you from any harm. Because obviously, you know, you get girls, even though they've got normal clothes on, you still get people staring at us. But I'm, t- I'm talking about in terms of males, basically. You get people staring at them. And what this does is t- it protects you because they they can't see my hair or any part of um, shape of my body in my region if you if you were in love with someone you were meant to get married with them um instead of having a boyfriend because in terms of having a boyfriend it um as as always ends up they either break a heart or something so that also protects us from having that because a lot of girls here well not just here probably just around western or anything you know when their boyfriend either, you know, has another interest in another girl, they just come crying home. But some of them commit, you know, they even kill themselves because of that. So this, what this does is it actually protects us from it. And also the biggest reason is because um, our law taught us to. Presumably girls in your school are kind of probably starting to have boyfriends sometimes, but you don't mind waiting until you're older. Well, see, um... (laughs) I always say to myself, there's there's more to, there's more to life than just love. I don't really think that way of you know you know boys boys all the time. I just have, I just I just don't think of it. I just think of another way, you know, just just get just get on with life the way it is. And then um, usually the friends I hang out with, they're not really interested in boys as well, you know. It's just it's the same old you know schoolwork and you know <laughs> what's going on at home and stuff like that. So I'm actually quite glad, you know. And when I see other girls who are basically, let's put the word, obsessed, you know, they, they're just always, they come out of the classroom and be like, oh, this boy said this, this boy said that. I was like, oh, that's annoying. I, mean, I literally think it's annoying. They can't think of anything else but just boys all the time, which is, I don't know. That's just... There is no if. The concept is, you know, when you're a young girl, you know, from a very early age, you're taught, you know, if, you, if, you've, if you've got it, flaunt it. But it's Islamically, um, the teaching is um, there is no if. As a woman or a girl, um, you definitely have it. And so safeguard it by covering it. And so each each um, female is seen as a, a precious jewel, you know, like, like a diamond or something. And it, I mean, if you had a precious jewel, jewel or a diamond, um, you wouldn't put it on open display for everybody to, you know, abuse. Hidden away from the moonlight walks an unexpected person. He stops for a moment, letting the wind blow across his pale face. He glanced right and heard deep breathing from somewhere. He walked ahead and saw saw a small girl lying against the tree, eyes closed and a long brown cloak wrapped around her. He kneeled down beside her. Her body looked so calm it hardly looked like she was breathing. 
He leaned in closer and brushed away the single strain of hair hanging over her forehead and kissed her softly on the, on the cold cheek. Because the school uniform is more or less a miniskirt, isn't mm, it? Yeah. We've um, uh, had the skirt adapted, which she wears down to the ankle and quite loose, as not to show her body shape. The shop that sells the school uniform, we got... Fortunately, we managed to get the material from, from the actual shop and then, you know, we took it to a, a local seamstress and she copied the pattern from, you know, a school skirt and we were able to do that and also with, with the girls' skirts. I mean, they just think it's very strange that anybody would want to expose that much of them because, again, you know, some of the skirts... I mean, you can see their underwear and they've come from a climate where you wouldn't normally see girls' underwear or women's underwear on a, di- on a normal day- daily basis. And so for them, it's just normal and natural to, you know, cover, you know, those parts of the body in, in, in particular. You said you said to me that there's no way that you're wearing your, your short skirt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, usually at school, on PE, we, we do um, all sorts of things, like basketball, football. Um, Kamogi, it's, it's, uh, I find it's hard to lift up the ball and sort of hear... Oh, I tried so hard at that, but I'm not really good at it. They wear shorts. Do they? <laughs> yeah, at Komogi. I think when they're having a match, they do wear sh- a skirt. But I find that really stupid because, I mean, this game is quite... T- I've seen the match, and it's quite tough, you know, and I'm sure they wear something underneath the skirt. I, mean, I don't see anything, but I'm sure they must because when they're, you know, pushing into each other and they fall down and, they, you know, the legs go flying. No, thinking, you can see the underwear. Yeah, and... Oh, God. And sometimes things that you don't, would rather not see yeah. as well, <laughs> depending on the position of legs and so on. But, I mean, uh, GAA were um, excellent, actually. Um, they took it upon themselves to consult with the superiors just, just to reassure us that it would be OK. And obviously you had people like Kevin Myers, the um, correspondent who... I think for him personally, he had problems. Um, they really were his problems because the girls continued to play Komogi for uh, just over a year, actually. So now this year they've changed to hockey and they're still wearing their hijabs. So for those politicians that have said that Irish girls don't wear headscarves, and my daughters have almost 800 years of Irish history. Uh, they have four generations of the family buried down at the um, local gra- graveyard. And so... You know, they have every right to express themselves and still be Irish at the same time, whilst following their religion. At Gorey Community School, the corridors are packed with students going between classes. Principal of the school, Nicholas Sweetman, was the person who first raised the issue of Muslim girls wearing the hijab in state schools when he wrote to the Department of Education in 2007. Well, I mean, it's a very large sector school. It's the biggest in the country, and we have 27 different nationalities on the roads at the moment. It's not a difficulty in general terms. One of the problems, obviously, though, is a number of the new students don't have English, so that's a huge um, logistical problem in trying to accommodate their needs when they don't have the mother tongue. Last year in enrolment time, it's good before before the school started. Uh, Shekinah's parents came to me to ask was there likely to be a problem with Shekinah using the hijab in school um, I said I didn't think there would be but that I would need to get advice from the Board of Management uh, I brought it up with the Board of Management the Board of Management felt as I did too that uh, it would be as well to get guidance from the department with regard to a state policy because we're a state school so we wrote to I wrote on behalf of the Board of Management to the department to request um, guidance 
um, and I pointed out that we had allowed Shikana to wear the hijab pending department guidelines. Uh, the, there was no problem with that except we didn't get a response. We wrote again in December and we got a sort of non-committal response saying that we looked into it. was um, an anonymous letter that was sent to, um, I think it was the Irish Times, which actually, you know, through the Freedom of Information um, Act, which actually sparked um, what happened mm, yeah. with Shekinah a bit later on. This was near the end of the year. When sort we were exams, yeah. and then suddenly... Um, I think my mum, uh, they called me to reception and uh, saw my mum outside we started walking up and she was telling me, I think it was the TV or something like that, that they were uh, going to uh, interview us. And I was saying, um, what for, basically? And they said, it's uh, to do the hijab. I said, oh. And I think the next day, was it late at night, where I actually saw myself on TV. And um, from that point on, lots of, lots of people started saying, you know, can I have this interview, can I have this interview? Yeah. And how did you feel about it? Did you mind? Well, I'm, I felt a bit nervous at one point because I've never actually been on TV and didn't exactly know what to say. But after the first interview got better, I certainly wanted to get my, um, what I really wanted to say because I, um, one, one of the things I'm quite angry about is um, even though you say it's, it's my right to a hijab or anything, people just don't want to think that it is that it's someone else, you know, as my parents, but it isn't. So that's one of the things that's really annoying me. I, you know, I try to track them down and say, no, it's my right. You, you, you can't do anything about that, you know. I did have concern that it was her choice, and I said that to her parents, and they assured me that it was her choice. And, uh, you know, I asked her the same question, and she assured me it was her choice. So, I mean, you know, I was happy with the answer I got. He, he gave me a sort of uh, impression that... If I wear the headscarf, you know, I would get comments or, you know, I'd be bullied and stuff like that. I had probably one or two comments. They can't really do anything, you know. And I actually, there's no point if someone says something at you, you just basically ignore them. There's no point getting into a real fight. But sometimes when, sometimes uh, when they do say something, I should just turn around and uh, I just give them a look, you know. Not very you know, horrible look, but a serious look, and they don't, they don't look at me that way, you know, or they don't say anything, you know. But um, as the year grew, I, I, I sort of let him see that no one can actually bully me, you know. Let, let, let's be clear here. There are some Muslim women who are forced to wear the hijab. I mean, that's being honest, yeah. There are also non-Muslim women here in Ireland who are made to stand on the streets for a pimp and have uh, bad, you know, relations with men, you know. Both of them are wrong, all right? So, you know, it's silly to address one issue and totally neglect the other issue, isn't it? And, 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 the, and the truth, of course, is the vast majority of Muslim women wear the hijab out of obedience to their Lord, not obedience to their husband or not obedience to their brothers or whatever. They wear it because they love Allah and His Messenger and they know this is a strict command for them. And it always has been. In the, in the Bible, in First Corinthians chapter 10, all right, the Christian women, it says, uh, and I have to paraphrase here because it's been a long time since I've been through the Bible, it said, let, let, let the women cover their heads. And if they do not cover their heads, let them be shorn, for it is a shame for them to show, the, it is a shame for them to show their heads or something like that, yeah? I, I'm paraphrasing. So, in Christianity, it's always been a teaching. Jew, Jewish women, when, once, they re, once they reached marriageable age, they covered themselves. Christian women, and if you look at uh, Mary, 
and any statue of Mary you're going to uh, she's wearing a covering and the nuns did it in imitation of course as well after Gory Community School contacted the Department of Education the matter was referred to the Minister of State for Integration Conor Lenehan who began a consultation process with mosques and school principals around the country Eventually it was decided that state policy would be that schools could decide their own policy on the wearing of the hijab. For the integration office, we know that um, they went to the two main mosques here, predominantly male, to talk about those things that affect females, Muslim females. Um, Less than a handful of women were consulted and, you know, it it was just not a true reflection of um, the Muslim woman in Ireland, let alone... Muslim schoolgirls. Nobody consulted the schoolgirls, and there are ways and means. I mean, parents could have been contacted very easily. Um, he chose to contact 4,000 non Muslim principals to decide how my children should go to school or not, how, should they, how they should practice their religion or not. For the Muslim w- woman, you know, we face sort of double opposition because you have the government establishments here who put up barriers for us. And then, of course, the Islamic establishments here who put up further b- barriers for, 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 for women. There are no females on the, on the um, committees in the, in the mosques here. So we don't have any part in the decision-making processes that actually affect our lives and our daughters. The imams make those d- decisions. They have no idea what it, what it is to wear a hijab or to be a Muslim female in Ireland. But here they are making decisions about the way that I dress and the way that my daughter dresses and, you know, countless others besides. One of the extremely disappointing issues regarding the hijab issue here in Ireland was the sycophantish nature of the, the mosques. We had the two mosques, Klonsky Mosque and South Central Mosque, who did absolutely nothing to advance the rights of Muslim women here in Ireland. In fact, what they've done is they've rallied against it because silence in Islam is tantamount to approval. And so what the mosques are doing here in Ireland is they're inculcating this second-class citizenship within the Muslim population. And it's this second-class citizenship that gave rise to horrific incidents like 7-7. And let me explain what I mean here. When the Pakistanis and Bangladeshis and other Asian communities came over to Britain in the 50s and 60s, they came over with a, with, a, with a sentiment of being less than the host community. And the host community also considered them less than them. So these children, you know, they, they, they were encouraged to get rid of their culture, and they did. Then their kids, they come along and they're lost. They're not British, they're not Pakistani. They don't know who the heck they are. The problem, of course, is that there are always extremist groups ready to pick up people like that. And it's exactly the same people that strapped explosives to themselves in 7-7. It wasn't just government policy. It was mosque inaction that led to the horrible events. And we have to do everything possible to prevent anything like that ever happening again, where some silly Muslim feels that he doesn't have any other means but then to you know, carry out an atrocity. What we have to do is we have to make sure that Muslims use legitimate means. We have to get them involved in democratic process, even if it displeases us. And we don't like democracy. I, I personally don't like democracy because I believe that the Sharia is a supreme system. I really do. But at, we, we live in a non-Muslim country. We are obliged to follow the laws of this country. And therefore, if we're going to use legitimate means, these are, these are the means that we must use. So what we have to do is we have to activate Muslims, we have to get them involved, and this is what the mosques will not do.
Look, Muslim extremism isn't rife in Ireland, but the potential for extremism is. Eventually she opened her eyes and saw the empty green cat-like eyes that gave nothing away. She smiled. She knew very little about him. He was about 18, medium length, silver hair, and wears a black, um, long black coat, black shoes and black clothing underneath. It's been over a year since, he's seen, since she's seen him. The time she nearly fell off a building and was attacked by mysterious men. But she wasn't surprised. Nearly all her life has been running and hiding, keeping her life a secret from others. Even her own name has never been heard or said. Right then. Dad! 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 Look, just the women that took forever. <laughs> <laughs> All right then, so I'll catch you later. Yeah. Hello. Hi, how are Hi, you? Okay. We're now um, off to the Balti House restaurant, which is the uh, local takeaway owned by a local Muslim, and his name is Omar, and uh, his wife is uh, Leela. And then above that, there's a space which we use for prayer. It's the Masallah. The brothers will be meeting there a little bit later on. And there's also a small Quran class where um, a group of children meet Monday to Friday each day from 7 to 8. And, um, you know, they have their Quran class. So we'll uh, go to the restaurant first of all and then up to the Masala. Well, it's not just hijabs, though, is it? I mean, that's just one issue. No, it just goes from one, you're, you're one to the to next. One now. Uh, if you look at the, the state here, the, the government here says it promises not to endow any religion over and above the other, yeah? But uh, you can see the Church of Ireland and, and the Catholic churches are um, well supported basically within the system here. You know, there are only two main mosques in Dublin, and that's it. Everything else is just kind of like a front room or, as you'll see, uh, a warehouse kind of converted. There, there seems, to be, seems to be some disparity between what's being said and evidence on the ground. It's a bit like the graveyard issue, isn't it, as well? There are two issues. I mean, first of all, it's the way that we need to be buried in terms of um, the, the actual re religion. Uh, you know, we don't actually have um, a space or a plot in a, a graveyard or cemetery to actually bury our dead. And so if, for example, there was a lady here recently, she lost uh, two, two children. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible enough that she's lost two children. But then, you know, she had to take a day trip to Dublin to go and bury her dead children. And whenever she wants to visit them, you know, she's got to travel for two hours. You know, we just, it's just the one main there's cemetery. One, there's one graveyard, not graveyard, there's one plot in all of Ireland for Muslims in Newborough in Dublin. And, but, the, but there are four, four graveyards for um, animals. animals. 45,000 Muslims in Ireland and we have one graveyard plot. There are 2,000 Jews and they have three graveyards. This mark of piety is an act of faith, a symbol for all the world to see. A simple cloth to preserve her dignity. Um, as you can see, uh, you've got the two guys here working away. Hi. How are you? Um, are, are the kids upstairs? Yeah. Yeah? Let's get some kids. Are you ready for Saturday? Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, in your dreams, man. Let me just give It's something sorry. happening on Saturday? Yeah, we're going paintballing. Yeah. Probably be arrested as terrorists. Yeah. There you go. Well, that's happened a few times, hasn't it? A couple of Muslims. The it hasn't happened in Ireland. In England. But it has yeah. happened in Britain yeah. and in America. So we could be the first ones in Ireland. <laughs> we right gone Yeah. Yeah. Upstairs. Okay. Leila, Nick, Leila, Leila. Nice to meet you. Hi, how are yeah, you? Yeah. 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 What's happening yeah. is they're learning how to read the Quran. I think there's eight of them, nine of them. They're raging from different ages. Abdullah is only four, and the little I converted 10 years ago, six months before I got married actually. And my husband is, um, his, he was born in Ireland, but his parents are from Pakistan. Okay, that sounds great. When I met Umar, one of the main reasons I converted was, uh, but not without research, was that uh, Umar was Muslim in order to marry him. I found that there's a lot of things about the Islam that I, I agreed with wholeheartedly. Like I was like, this all makes so much sense. Yeah, and I said, gosh, this could be for me. <laughs> and then, thank God, <laughs> it was. <laughs> and um, what kind of reaction did you get when you converted from, say, your family and friends? I have to say that my family were very supportive, especially my mother. I have, from all my family, I have seven brothers. I'm very protective. I know Sawad has a lot of brothers, but you're the only girl. Six. Yeah. And you're the only girl in yeah. your family. At least I have a sister to back me up. This looks lovely. Samosa, and then just a cheese and bread. Just a little selection of little things, because I know you came along with I have a lot of Irish friends, but I think I will be drawn to the people who are more like me, like who don't go out at night time or who don't go to pubs or who don't wear mini skirts or obviously or who who have the same kind of lifestyle as me. People said well you know Muslim women they don't like to be beautiful they don't like to dress up yeah. they don't do their hair I mean all I can say to that when the, when the covering comes off and all that black comes off you'll see the most amazing style and expression akin to none really that I've ever seen the jewellery and the makeup and the fashion and the clothes and you know and women are just dressed to the hilt for the, for the women for the women that take it quite seriously obviously we don't wear makeup outside but it's in reverse because then you know we wear makeup inside so you know instead of sort of getting really dolled up so that some joe can admire you and thinking about you know the pleasures that he might have later on which he's never obviously never going to have you know we prefer to dress for our husbands who you know should respect us and admire us and have the pleasure of actually looking on that beauty and, and, and enjoying it. I mean, every woman knows how to dress to please a man, um, but the greatest reward comes from comes from actually dressing um, to please the man that you're with, rather than every man that you may engage in. I believe when I converted that I chose. <laughs> I did change my life. In fact, to be honest with you, when I was growing up in a family of seven boys and me and my sister my, I was very restricted anyway my father was that kind of person he was very strict and he 
I just live my life like inside in the house with my dad basically that's and my brothers all did what they wanted yeah, to do yeah. Yeah. yeah and my, my, if my my dad had could lock me up he would <laughs> <laughs> that was it, yeah, same you know. And I think that's that's the way girls are treated with a lot of uh, <laughs> like, um, with um, when they're brought up with a lot of boys, you know. And I think that's what fathers are for, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Sometimes I find it really boring just going out. I usually go out for a reason. I don't just go out just for nothing. I'm mean, loads of my friends. I, I think I know in school they just, they just go out and they just sit anywhere and just chat oh, I'm okay with that but doing it every day I just think is really boring or oh, they just walk around and I think I just think to myself don't they ever get tired you know no I don't really hang around that much I just stay in the house I've got a habit of doing that oh is the prayer going to start why are you falling off just because it's loose it's loose it's loose the the issue of modesty is something enjoined upon both uh, sexes so the, you know when the, the prophet وسلم, when he talks about the hijab for the woman he says let the believing men and the believing women lower their gaze so this is the first thing that people should do is lower their gaze so there's an aspect of modesty in that uh, but then he also talks about the the dress code for men and he speaks of the aura the aura is what's considered uh, one's private part and for the man it's from the navel to the knee um, and so in this area the shape should not be visible, which is why tight pants and jeans, etc., would not be acceptable during prayer. Um, but, and loose clothing is enjoined upon men as it is upon women as well. But in addition to that, um, you know, a Muslim man is obliged to grow a beard, and this is tantamount to their hijab. Uh, it is c- a command of the Prophet. The Prophet said, grow your beards and be different from the non-believers, be different from the people who don't accept Islam. Also, the garment should be above the ankles. Um, the Prophet told us that uh, whatever is below the ankles is in the hellfire. And so the Muslim man, he wears his garment loose. He makes sure that his aura is not visible. He has a beard and his garments are above his ankle. And, and unfortunately, there are too few men to actually follow this, but are very, very quick to tell women what they should do. There have been difficulties because of the hijab um, and because of my husband's beard, you know, as a Muslim male. I mean, we haven't been very successful in terms of employment, you know, because both my husband and I, we're in the field of education. I think we have about 30 years' experience between the two of us. For both of us, it is a case of quite literally sending off your credentials. People are very enthusiastic by email, on the phone. In one instance, my husband's case, he was offered a managerial position uh, through, you know, over the phone, through a, a phone interview, and it was sort of, you know, when can you start? Can you start yesterday? Because they were quite impressed with his uh, credentials. And um, when he inquired and sort of made it known that, you know, he, he's a practicing male Muslim, like he didn't actually demand anything or ask for anything, just sort of, you know, he thought he'd let them know. That's when it goes silent, usually. 
Um, so sort of one day you might get a almost job offer, if you like, and then, um, you know, it's gone as quickly as it's been offered, basically. People claim to be equal ops um, employers, but, you know, in, in reality, it's not something that's enforced in Ireland, we found. But I, would, I feel down because my mum and dad don't have a job and I, I'm... I mean, I don't know how hard it is not to get a job. I just pray to God that one day, you know, they can get a job and, you know, everything will be okay. And they will eventually get a job. I just, well, I have no idea what the future is going to be like, you know, because I just hope for the best that I can get a good job because I'm, I'm, working, I'm working my hardest to get into university so that I, I can get the job I want, not, you know, the job that, I have to get because you know I felt so many subjects or I couldn't because I'm a Muslim so I don't see how Muslim schools or Catholic schools or Protestant schools I don't see how they build a better society what we have got to do is we've got to learn how to live together and there's no point in sectioning you know the Muslims off in one area and the Jews off in another area and the Hindus off in, we might as well all live together and learn to live together because at the end of the day the real world is based on what we see every day there's a reality you know and there's no point in hiding people away from that this issue about the hijab you know people were saying you know school is for education absolutely school is for education and and if it's for education then we need to be teaching our students to learn how to negotiate difference and what better way than by letting them see the difference that's why they were wrong to bring this argument up in the first place because it was a wonderful opportunity to make sure that the racism that has permeated Irish society vanishes. And the only way it's going to vanish is by making sure that people learn to deal with difference, not pushing it out. The Quran gives the reasons why we, we, we cover, you know, because of modesty. Uh, it also shows that you're free. It actually says this in the Quran that you're a free woman. And you're 15 today, aren't you? So, oh, it's your birthday! Um, yeah, <laughs> happy birthday! Thank you. We don't celebrate we don't really birthdays. Celebrate. Oh, we just yeah. usually um, know uh, our date. Basically, we don't usually celebrate it. But yeah, I'm 15 today. And why don't you celebrate it? Well, it's sort of against our religion. It's also because when people have birthdays, they expect someone to come, like someone probably close to them or parents probably get this particular present you know for them it's sort of a special day and a lot of times things sort of go wrong so that's one of the things where we don't really celebrate it you just have to know that god gave you another year to live we were discussing that the other day because um it's unfortunate that a number of suicides take place on people's birthdays when they feel that they haven't been remembered and if they were particularly lonely anyway it just highlights that even more when nobody else has remembered the day that they feel should be a special day for them and also you know is islamically it's an arrogance in 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 some ways because yes you you are special but that life has been given to you by god it's not something that you've created for yourself and so there's just that thankfulness that yes I've had another year, and, you know, we're quite happy to have that. In Gori for Shekinah, the issue is resolved. But because the departmental guidelines on the wearing of the hijab leave the decision to individual schools, it is a problem that will almost certainly arise again. With, with everyone asking me, why do I want to wear the hijab, and do you feel comfortable in it, has made me become, to know why I wear the hijab, if someone asks me, you know, why don't you just take it off? I would explain to them 
you know, why should I take it off? It's my religion. I want to. And if you don't feel comfortable or if you don't like me, that's not my problem. It's yours. And then people just say that Islam's just all about a headscarf. Well, hold on a minute. It's not just that. I mean, you're focusing on just the women there. But Islam is all about yourself and all about what's around you, basically. It's nature, um, how God created everything, how, how God created the animals, and another creature, which is basically us, you know, flesh and bone. But what he, he teaches us why we're on earth and what the things we were meant to do. It, it's also taught me who I am and why I wear the headscarf. I'm not just wearing it because my parents told told me to. I mean, they, they, they say, you know, you, your parents force you on. That's a terrible lie. Or your or your dad or anyone in, in the family that's male forces you to wear it. That, that's, that's completely wrong. It's your choice either to wear it or not to wear it. And I've chosen to wear it. And I know why I want to wear it, so... I just feel happy more than ever, I suppose, because you just realised I've just known more about my religion than I ever did. He turned around facing her. What are you afraid of? She stared at him, confused. Afraid? What do you mean? He slowly walked behind her. The power you can see is far more greater than you had expected. Why not unleash it? To be free again? She looked away, not sure whether to answer him. Kadaj, I... She couldn't find the words. Suddenly he pulled in close and hugged her. He felt her shiver and closed in more. I would do anything to protect you, he whispered. She looked up and watched the full moon make its way through the dark clouds that surrounded it.